I don't know what you guys think uh, about miracles, if you believe in them, or how you explain seemingly miraculous things that happen, or if you just casually throw around the word miracle, like, it's a miracle, you know, that the Astros are now the AL West division champions. As of today, it's a miracle. That's, I mean, it's great. It's awesome. I'm, not, I'm really excited about it. I'm not sure it's a miracle. You know what I mean? Like, well, I found my bread I like at the store. It's a miracle. Like, I'm not sure that's what miracles are. But I don't know where you land with miracles, where you are. With, I know not everybody believes in them. But I think, I think, I witnessed two of them this week on the same day. I think it was Tuesday, might have been Wednesday. I can't tell anymore since Harvey which day is which. <laughs> but I think it was Tuesday that I first saw this piece of art behind me. I laid my eyes on this for the first time on Tuesday. And as I told Sebastian earlier, it physically did something to me, which doesn't really compute. Make, it doesn't make sense. Scientifically, biologically, it doesn't make sense why this would make my heart rate go up or why random, seemingly random colors on wood or canvas or whatever is, it, it has the, such an impact that it brings a grown man to tears. Why does it affect us that much, um, art? You know, why does it affect all of us differently? Why is it not uniform? Because, you know, if, if we're just random molecules that are pieced together that accidentally appeared in the universe one day, why would beauty impact us? To me, beauty is one of the great indicators of the existence of God and the nature of God. Because if God's real and God created us to be this way, then God wants us to know beauty. God wants us to see beauty. God designed us to desire beauty. That to me, it says something. It doesn't it doesn't make sense in a purely scientific worldview. I'm not anti-science. I love science. I try to keep up with the latest science. And I think it's fascinating what science is doing. But science, science can only explain why things are useful. It can't explain why things are beautiful. You see what I mean? You see the difference? So, so Darwin knew exactly why I wanted to or needed to or was driven to procreate with my wife back in the day, <laughs> way back in the day. The, the drive to procreate, completely gone now. Like, no more kids in our future, trust me. Um, I mean, the drive is still, anyway, I'm not going to, the kids are the problem, right? Not anything. Anyway, I'm not going to go there with you. But you see what I'm saying? So the, the Darwin and the science, all of that can explain that completely, why that drive is there to procreate. But Darwin would not have an explanation for why I would take a bullet for that woman. A thousand bullets. I would die a thousand humiliating, painful, awful deaths if it meant she got to live. Love and beauty and hope. These things are miraculous to me. I, I, I can only say that I, I think science explains the evolution of life. But things like art express life and the meaning of life itself. Now, sometimes it seems like science uh, plays a role in miracles. Like, I'm not saying science is anti-miracle. Sometimes it's 
the reason why we see a miracle, like the second miracle that I saw on that same day this week. It happened when I went to visit my buddy in the hospital, Casey. Casey is a salt of the earth kind of guy. He's watching online right now. Hey, Casey. Everybody say, hey, Casey. <laughs> He's going to love that. So, <laughs> uh, all right. So Casey loves his wife, who is here, <laughs> his wife, Dorian. He's a father of five kids whom he loves. He loves Star Wars. He loves the NL West Division Champs Astros. And he loves Longhorn football. Casey has an incredible sense of humor which makes sense because you have to have a sense of humor to love Longhorn football. And he is, he is one of the funniest guys you'll ever meet. I laugh more with Casey. And Casey brings out the least pastoral parts of me, <laughs> the least Christian parts of me sometimes. And I just get to let loose. Every pastor needs a friend like Casey. Back in May, Casey and I were standing outside of our kids' school. They go to the same school, Poe Elementary. We're standing outside of Poe Elementary. And it was the last day of school, end of May. We were just shooting the breeze, catching up. And I realized Casey was not himself. He was obviously favoring one leg. He was in a lot of pain. And I looked at the leg he was favoring. It was, it was uh, really swollen. It, was, it looked awful. And I asked him what was going on, and he explained to me that he and his wife Dorian had been um, floating down a river in Austin the past weekend, and that he must have caught some kind of an infection. And he said some kind of joke about how easy it is to catch infections in Austin because of what the hippies do in the rivers in Austin. <laughs> and he, he made a joke about it, and, and we went on our way. But a couple days later, the, the swelling just got so bad. The pain got so bad that um, Dorian had to rush into the hospital. And long story short, the doctors informed him and Dorian that Casey didn't have an infection. He has leukemia, an extremely acute, uh, potentially chronic or terminal brand of leukemia. And they life-flighted him to the med center right away and began treatments, and they ran tests. And he, the doctor said he had every card in the deck stacked against him. He had some chromosomal abnormality that made it unlikely, highly unlikely, maybe impossible he would ever get to a point of remission from this cancer. His white blood cell counts were astronomical, even for somebody who has blood cancer, leukemia. It was, it was just one piece of bad news after another. Things looked really bad. I went to see him a couple days after he was admitted to the hospital. This is a picture from my visit with Casey. It gives you some idea of what he brings out in me. And even then, we were laughing and joking around. Casey went through several rounds of chemo, the worst of which was called by the doctors um, the near-death round. That's what it does. It takes you to death's door. And they just hope it's not too much for you to survive. It's hell on earth for your body when you go through that. But Casey, even knocking on death's door, <laughs> Casey kept smiling. And not a fake smile to make you comfortable. Like the same Casey smile, he just kept smiling. This is a picture of him on the beach with his kids, bald from the chemo and, and smiling ear to ear, happy to be alive. I once asked Casey how it is that he keeps smiling. That same smile. It was the day after uh, the Aggies had blown that huge lead to UCLA. And Casey said, man, I just feed on Aggie tears. And they are delicious, he said. <laughs> That's Casey. <laughs> this week, 
by the miracles of modern science, my friend Casey received a stem cell transplant. And man, it's still a long road. Still an uphill climb. And Casey's got a long way to go and needs a lot of prayers and a lot of support. But man, for right now, it feels good to know that he's got a new lease on life. He's got a second chance. Even the doctors, even the doctors called the transplant day, day zero. They said, because it's like you've been born again. And I said, what? It's like, what? I, I think Jesus, I think Jesus owns the trademark on that. Well, you guys owe Jesus some royalties. It's like you've been what? And they were like, no, seriously, it's like your life starts again. And you become a new person. They literally killed his old immune system. They killed all of it. His immune system was gone because of the chemotherapy. And then they inject somebody else's immune system into you. So you have a new chance to live. And I joked with Casey, I said, man, because what they did was they, they killed his 38-year-old male immune system and they injected him with 24-year-old female immune system. I said, man, you're probably going to turn into a woman. And I said, it's cool, though, because your name's already Casey. You don't even have to change it. So you can just stay right there with it. So anyway. Now, some people would be uncomfortable calling a medical procedure like that a miracle because why thank God for something that awesome people are doing, right? So why thank God for something when it's just really amazing? Like stop thanking God, thank the person. Or the same people might say, if I said, look at this miracle behind me, some people would say, look, get off your knees, stop thanking God. God didn't do that. Sebastian did that. Get off your knees, stop thanking God, go thank Sebastian. He did that. And I, I understand that way of thinking very well because I used to think that way. Truly, that was me. For most of my adult life, that was me because I wanted so bad to be in control of my life. I wanted exactly um, to draw straight lines from here to there and know who to thank for what. I wanted to, to, I'd much rather thank a person or people than some invisible being in the sky somewhere. So when the art moved me, I thanked the artist. When the medicine healed me, I thanked the doctor. But there was a turning point for me, for me personally, and I can't speak for y'all, and this, you have your own journey. There was a turning point for me that brought me from this place of skeptical, intellectual cynicism to a deeper faith in something more, something transcendent. That turning point for me was this fact-finding mission I was invited on by an archaeologist to follow him around the Holy Land for two weeks in January of 2013. And he took us to all the dig sites and he told us all the facts, this and that, and showed us all the evidence. First of all, the evidence of Jesus' existence. Second of all, the evidence of Jesus' nature. Did Jesus really walk the earth? Almost everyone, 99.9% .9 of historians and scholars agree Jesus walked the earth. Jesus really died on a Roman cross. Those things are indisputed, indisputable facts at this point. Second, though, if he did those things, what does it mean? Who was he? Was he just another religious upstart who ticked off the wrong people and is no longer with us? Or was he who he said he was? The son of God. God incarnate for a time on earth to show us, to reveal to us, not just the nature of a man named Jesus, but to show us, reveal to us the nature of God. The evidence to me on that trip was 
too overwhelming to ignore. I truly came back a different man. I could no longer rely on my own intellect just to make sense of things. I had to submit and surrender to this notion that there's more. There's more to life. Beauty speaks to that something more. Art speaks to that something more. Love and hope and joy speak to that something more. And so I couldn't keep saying thank you just to the artists and just to the doctors. Artists express beauty, but they express beauty that pre-existed them. They just bring to the fore beauty that was already there to begin with, you see? They, they don't invent beauty. They just take everything else out of the picture. They take all away all the clutter and they show you the beauty that was already there. You can still thank the artist, but just realize there was something there before the artist. Doctors perform things like stem cell transplant. They don't, they don't invent the cells. They don't create the cells. And I know some of y'all nerds are like, oh, they will. They will very soon. They might, you know, like, I, I totally get what you're saying. And I'm right there with you. But, but even if that's the case, they didn't set in place the laws of nature, the regular laws of nature that can be depended on, the, the ground on which science stands, the laws of nature that make science possible to begin with. No scientist but those laws in place, if you keep going back one step further, you'll find that there's some truth, some eternal transcendent truth underneath science and underneath art. Whoever wrote the New Testament, the people that wrote the New Testament had an experience like the one I had in the Holy Land of 2013. But they had even a more profound experience because they experienced this man Jesus personally and he, he changed them. And whoever wrote this book called Hebrews that we're looking at here at the story for a while had a profound experience with Jesus. Because he had one worldview clearly before Jesus, had a whole different worldview after he experienced Jesus. And he's writing this letter to people who are treating Jesus with respect, but acting like Jesus is really no different than any other religious teacher, preacher, guru, spiritualist that, that just lived and did his best and taught us some nice things, but he made the wrong people mad and now he's gone. And, and we can honor him. We can, we can tell the stories he told. We can build a statue in his name, but let's not get carried away and worship him and make him the center of our life. That's, that's what fanatics do. That's what's going on at this time when Hebrews is written. And so this writer is saying, no, no, no. Jesus, Jesus was one of two things. He either... He either was who he said he was, God incarnate, and if so, that means everything changes. Or he was a religious charlatan, snake oil salesman, one of these televangelists who says, send money and God will bless you. Like, one of those two things is true. And we get to make our choice about Jesus. So I want to read you a little part of this letter, and then, and then we'll basically be done. This is um, the third chapter of Hebrews, verses 1 through 6. Y'all just dial in with me here, um, bear with me, and I'm going to unpack this a little bit and, and help us understand what this means. So it says, therefore, brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and our high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus had been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house is greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. 
Now, if you're unfamiliar with the New Testament, all you need to know about this passage is that it was written by a Jewish believer to other Jewish people. And if you're not familiar with the Jewish faith, all you need to know is no one mattered more to them than Moses. Moses was everything. He was the main character in the Jewish salvation story. In the Hebrew narrative, Moses was the lead actor. And he was so important that when they decided to make a movie about Moses, the Hollywood execs, many of whom were Jewish dudes, decided that the person most suited to play Moses was Charlton freaking Heston, who is a 6'4 British dude, ripped to the core. I've never met many Jewish dudes that look like Charlton Heston. But it was symbolic, right? So the reason Charlton Heston played Moses is that Moses was Charlton Heston on the inside, right? He was, he was a leader of men. You know, he, he stood up to Pharaoh. He led the the Hebrew people out of their slavery in Egypt into the wilderness. He governed their life in the wilderness. He brought down the Ten Commandments from God on the mountaintop. He was a leader, and, and, and he was the most important leader in the Hebrew culture. Now, though he was the main character in the Hebrew culture, and though he's the reason the Hebrew people attained their land and had this culture and had Ten Commandments and their and their way of life, uh, this author is saying, look, Moses was faithful, no doubt. But Moses was a faithful servant in God's house. Moses did not build the house. Moses is not the owner of the house. Moses was just a man, not even the head of household, not the builder. And the listeners of this sermon would have been, this story would have been like, yeah, of course, Moses didn't build the house. Solomon built the house because the house was the temple. The Jewish people believed that God lived literally in the temple, that the Jerusalem temple was God's house, which I, no disrespect to Jewish people because Christians do the same thing. But it's a little bit silly, a little bit ridiculous to assume that people can build a house for God because God has everything. God made the stars in the sky, billions and billions of stars. We can't even comprehend the size and scope of the universe. And we're going to build God a house that's suitable for him to live in. Why would God need a house? But that's still the way we think. People who are religious and non-religious still call church the house of God. We were told when we were young, there's certain things you can't wear in the house of God. It's disrespectful. In God's house, you can't wear a hat. I was told you can't wear a hat. I hate you going to church because they wouldn't let me wear my hats in church. Or you, or you can't, you know, wear shorts or skirts that are too short. Or, or you can't say certain things in God's house. You can't chew gum in God's house. Somebody out in the lobby was like, can I bring my coffee in there? Because we don't want to offend God in God's house. You know, it's like, should I take off my shoes? Like, what should I, you know, it's like, like you're worried about offending God in God's house. I did a counseling session in that room behind that glass this week in which the guy literally said to me, he said, I know we're in God's house, so I'm just gonna tell you exactly what happened. And I was making mental notes to myself. I was like, never trust anything this guy ever tells you outside of this church because the only reason he's being honest with you is we're in God's house, you know what I mean? And so we've got these ideas deep Inside of us um, that are deeply ingrained of us, we still think of church as God's house, just like the ancient Hebrews did, even though God never needed our house, never needed his house to be built by men, right? 
Isaiah 66 says, heaven is my home. God says, heaven is my home. Why build me a house? Acts 17 says, God does not live in temples made by men. And when Paul said that in Acts 17, the temple in Jerusalem was still standing. It hadn't been destroyed yet. So that's phenomenal. That's incredible that Paul, a Jewish man, he called himself a super Jew. He said, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, and he was a Pharisee. And he's saying God doesn't live in the temple. This was heresy. He could have been killed, stoned by the religious leaders for saying such things. But Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus, and Jesus changed Paul's perspective. And that day was Paul's day zero. His life started again that day, and he saw things differently. Now, the question is, if God doesn't live in this house, if God doesn't live in churches or temples, where does God live? And you might have noticed if you were paying attention to that thing I read earlier from Hebrews, the word house or home, they're mentioned seven times in six verses. So this writer is wanting us to understand this about God's house, where it really is. He says four things about it. First, he says that wherever it is, God made it. God built it. God is building it up. Not men, not us, not guys like me. We're not that's not what it's about. Second thing, Moses and religious leaders are stewards or servants in God's house, but not the builders of God's house. All Moses did was prepare the house of God for the rightful owner. So Moses connected the cable, Moses mowed the grass, Moses lit some candles for the rightful owner to get home. And the rightful owner, the third thing that says the rightful owner is Jesus. Jesus is more than a man. Jesus was God incarnate the eternal God with flesh on for a time on earth to know us intimately, to die for us. And the fourth and most important thing, this is where the plot thickens. This is the great plot twist. This is what should, it blew my mind. I don't know what it does to you. The fourth thing this person says about the house of God is, quote, we are his house. We are his house. We are the house of of God. We are God's home. Now I want you to think as we wrap up just about the concept of home and just in your own mind think what, what is home to you and why. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Especially in Houston right now, post-Harvey, when many people have lost their houses or parts of their houses. And their houses are stacked up on corners and curbs and streets. Their drywall, their wood, their, their brick and mortar, it's all stacked up outside. But these people, if you talk to them, they don't feel homeless a lot of the time. They still feel like they have a home. Some of you that lost your, your house in Harvey, you're still going to leave here and say, I'm going home. Because home isn't brick and mortar and wood and drywall. Home is family. Home is friends. Home, home is, is where your soul finds its rest. I want you to consider the, the profound, transcendent, miraculous truth. Consider it. Even if you don't consider yourself religious, just consider this. What if, God, what if God's desire is to call your heart his home? What if it's not about church? What if it's not about temple? What if it's not about buildings? What if it's not about religion? What if it's about relationship with you and the one who made you? What if it's about God saying, hey, 
You don't have to go to church to find me. You don't have to go anywhere to find me. What if it's about God saying, look, I've done all the legwork. I've come to you. I'm at your heart's door. All you have to do is open your heart to me. Now, this means you don't need church, not in the sense of a building, not in the sense of an institution or religion. You don't need church to find God. In fact, if you didn't already know him before you came to church, some of you unknowingly came to church. If you didn't already know him before you came here, chances are you're not going to find him here. You're probably going to have just another frustrating experience at some religious service, right? And you're like, can we just get to the food and the non-alcoholic drinks? And Sebastian, I understand. But listen, if you didn't have him before you got here, it's doubtful that you're going to find him here. He doesn't live here. Because it's not about opening the door to a church. It's about opening your heart's door to the possibilities that God is real. Creation has purpose. Beauty is transcendent. And your life matters. It's choosing to believe that is why Jesus came. Because he's God in the flesh. And if he's really God, then God is love. Willing to die for you and me and all the messes we've made and all the mistakes and all the things we've done and said, and willing to put those things deep in the grave to set us free. He loves you enough to call you his home, his family. Maybe, I've thought this week, maybe that's why Sebastian can take canvas and wood and a random assortment of colors. I know it's not random. I know there's a lot of thought that goes into it. A bunch of colors and, and create something like this because maybe God has taken up residence in his heart. Maybe God lives in him. Maybe this is the outpouring of God's spirit from Sebastian on to this canvas. Maybe that's why Casey keeps smiling even though he walks through the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe he keeps smiling because the living God lives in Casey. And Casey has this assurance that no matter what happens to him, he's okay because God calls his heart home. And I'm betting many of you are here today because you still believe, part of you still believes. Even if you didn't know you were coming to church, you were coming to celebrate art, that tells me part of you still believes in beauty. You still believe in hope. You may even still believe in God even though you don't consider yourself religious. And I applaud that. Whatever it takes for the love of God, do not ever become more religious. God doesn't need more religious people in the world. God needs more relationship, more hearts in which to take up residence and call himself at home. I believe the day that that happens in you is your day zero. Is the day that all the resentment, all the pain from your past, all the unforgiveness, all the hurt, it all fades away. And there's a new beginning, a new start. You don't have to go anywhere or do anything or say the right words or give the right amount to any Religious guy like me. It's a relationship. So you just say in your own mind, in your own heart, okay, my hard heart can't keep running. I believe part of me believes. Meet me where I am, God. Part of me believes. I'm opening the door. Be careful, God. It's kind of a mess in here. <laughs> just make yourself at home in me, God. I hope that for someone here, that's a prayer you're willing to pray right now.
So uh, wherever you are, just, just uh, whether you're a praying person or not, just, just um, let's reflect together. Let's pray together. I'm going to lead us in a little prayer. You, you pray your own prayer. And, and I pray that, that uh, for someone here today, it's day zero. It's a new beginning and a fresh start. Let's go to God. All right, Lord, um, not going to lie, there's uh, still a lot of things that we question, a lot of doubts, a lot of fears about losing control and turning our hearts over to you. God, at the same time, we know deep down that this life we're living is not some random molecular accident, but that we are here in this time and place for some deeper purpose, some reason. There is something to be hopeful about, God. There is something to cling to, some truth. This art that we celebrate tonight is just one more reminder of the transcendence of this life. I pray that we open our hearts courageously and with trust and invite you in to call us your home. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.